We return to our interview with, with Dr. Gibbs as we are discussing the legitimate and honest and dishonest diplomatic maneuvering between Russia and the United States over the decades. Enjoy. And let's look at the other side of the coin and, and have you comment, which is basically look at what the United States has done in the START Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the Iran Nuclear Agreement, all of those things that we've backed off and reneged on plus the oral commitments that we made, as you've already mentioned. Can you speak to the, the significance of our position where we switched direction on the START Treaty and the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty and the significance of that? Well, you know, under Trump, you know, Trump was a very interesting character in that, you know, he did make some anti-war and anti-NATO noises mm-hmm. and also made a lot of noises that he wanted to improve relations with Russia. But in reality, he was much, much tougher on Russia than Obama had been. Uh, he did all sorts of things against Russia that Obama was not willing to do, including withdrawing from strategic forces treaties, effectively, as well as also he's given weapons to, uh, Trump had given weapons to the Ukrainian government, something Obama, at least publicly, was not willing to do. And I think that there's been a narrative, a very silly narrative, about the Russians were controlling Trump. That's wildly implausible to the extent that he was much harsher on Russia in terms of his policies mm-hmm. than his predecessor had been, and that's often overlooked. And, uh, you know, even if he says, you know, I like Putin personally or says nice things about him personally, that's less significant than the fact that he's given anti-tank weapons right. to the Ukrainian government to be used against pro-Russian forces in the Donbass region. And he's made anti-NATO noises, which is significant because he's the first president since 1949 to even talk about the possibility of ending U.S. involvement with NATO. Mm-hmm. But that's it. Other than that, he simply continued the long-standing U.S. tradition of supporting NATO. So it hasn't gone beyond, beyond verbal criticism, as far as I can tell. That's a great adjective or whatever, making noise. Yeah. Uh, making noise, but then in reality becoming much more stringent on Russia. Yeah, that's a red line for the warmongers of our country. To make peace with Russia and or to extend an honest diplomatic dialogue that respects the national security interests of both countries. That's a red line. And because it's a red line, it reveals what Dr. King said about this country of being the most violent country in the world. Yet we are brainwashed to believe Russia is the aggressor and that the U.S. is the peacekeeper and promoter of democracy. So let me ask you this. You mentioned, and I'm not so sure you'll know this, but I'm interested in it. In the Donbass, the anti-tank missiles, the significance of the weaponry that the West, and particularly the United States, has been pouring into Ukraine, that's such a concern to the Russians, include Javelin anti-tank missiles. Can you tell us, is that a significant elevation of, it's one thing to give a country some military aid, but then the different levels of sophistication of that aid is certainly something Russia's paying attention to and apparently is very disturbed about. Can you explicate that a little bit for us? Honestly, I haven't looked at the technical specifications of the Javelin, but I think the main significance is this is the first time the delivering of Javelin anti-tank missiles to the Ukrainian government to be used against rebels in the Donbass backed by Russia, which occurred under Trump. That was the first time to my knowledge, that publicly the U.S. government has given direct military aid to the Ukraine to be used in the Donbass conflict. And again, that was something that Obama was not willing to do, mm-hmm. that Trump was willing to do. And that was a very significant es- escalation. And in fact, I would say in foreign policy, that was one of the most significant, in my view, dangerous things that Trump did. Mm-hmm. 
also there's reports from what I'm understanding that there's billions of dollars of military aid that have gone into the Ukraine from the United States. A lot of it had to do with, I think, more defensive-oriented military aid. One source is the Defense Department itself, which back on June 18, 2019, announced plans to provide $250 million to Ukraine in security cooperation funds for additional training, equipment, and advisory efforts to build the capacity of Ukraine's armed forces. The Defense Department goes on to, def- to confirm that there's been a long-standing defense relationship between the United States and Ukraine, and that this 2019 sale will bring the total of U.S. security assistance to Ukraine took $1.5 billion since the 2014 coup. The new funds provide equipment for ongoing training programs, operational needs, enhancing maritime situational awareness and operations as part of ongoing U.S. efforts to increase support for Ukraine's Navy and Naval Infantry the defense capability and survivability of Ukraine's land and special operations forces through the provision of sniper rifles, rocket-propelled grenade launchers, and counter-artillery radars, other electronic warfare detection and secure communications equipment, and night vision-type goggles. But, yeah, the acceleration of all this is very disconcerting. I also just want to remind folks, we're visiting with Professor of History, Dr. David Gibbs. His academic position is at the University of Arizona. He's a professor of, of history and a professor of history there for over a decade. And his historical acumen is exceptional on the things we're discussing tonight. So I really appreciate you being here tonight. I just want to take a step back because in the coup in 2014 in the Ukraine, preceding that, Yanukovych, who was the elected president, there was polling that was made available, and we've cited it on the show before. The polling was done by Foundation Robert Schumann, the Research and Studies Center of Europe, the European Elections Monitor. And in an article on July 10th, 2010, on their site, the results were published. The electoral map, which is split between red and blue, had Viktor Yanukovych easily winning in the east and the south of the Ukraine, with peaks of popularity in the regions of Donetsk of 90.4% and Lugansk of 88.8%, and in the autonomous region of Crimea at 78.3%. So when 90% of those in the east and the south voted for the president that got cooed out, it just doesn't make any sense to believe the Washington propaganda that it was the Russians that instigated the separatist movement rather than the coup itself that dislodged this very popular president in the separatist areas and was then followed by this great repression from right-wing forces of the new Kiev coup government. It was much more likely that it was that stimulus that instigated the separatist movement rather than Russian aggression and such. So the idea that you would sit here, you know, we talk about our own country. If another country invaded us or cooed out our government and a bunch of people took up arms to put back into the presidential office or in response to our president being cooed out, that's a much different narrative. The same with Crimea. There was a referendum there where over 90% of the folks voted, over 75% wanted to remove themselves from Ukraine due to their incredible repression and the very right-wing neo-Nazi cabinet-led repression that immediately came after the 2014 coup. Can you speak of that a little bit in the sense of this conflict? We keep on saying 
that Russia is stoking it, that Russia is doing it. Russia keeps on saying, look, we don't have any troops in there. We certainly are not going to let these people get wiped out by huge NATO-led suppression. But can you explicate that for us from your perspective? Let me, give you, let me give you a little bit of the background here. The Ukraine is a divided society between pro-Russian and anti-Russian elements that are almost equally divided in terms of the population, as far as I can tell. And the history of this is that, well, first of all, linguistically, uh, Western and central Ukraine are mostly Ukrainian-speaking mm-hmm. and are mostly hostile to Russia. Eastern and southern Ukraine, mm-hmm. including the Crimea and the Donbass region, are mostly Russian-speaking uh, and are very much more inclined to view Russia as the power they look to. The history of it is that western Ukraine had been treated very badly by Stalin and during its collectivization project, which was catastrophic for the population. There was, in fact, a famine in western Ukraine, a terrible famine with millions of deaths. There's no question that was a horrible event, which, of course, intensified the sort of anti-communist proclivities of the people who lived there. And during the uh, German invasion of the Soviet Union Operation Barbarossa, a sizable numbers of Ukrainians joined the Waffen SS, which formed a special Ukrainian division. And there was a kind of pro-German political movement, pro-Nazi, really, political movement in the Ukraine, led by Milan Bandera, all right? And exactly in what percentage of the people in the Western Ukraine supported this is very hard to say, but it wasn't insignificant by most of the indications. And they committed some pretty horrible atrocities. You know, generally speaking, people like to think that people were victimized, as the Western Ukrainians were, you know, react by becoming gentler, but that certainly is not, was not the case here. And in any case, the bottom line is that you do indeed have very unsavory elements in Western and Central Ukraine that were pushing to overthrow Yanukovych, including the Svoboda Party and the right sector, right. which were, had very unsavory characteristics, which uh, were sort of glorifying the history under Bandera, who was a, essentially a pro-German collaborator. Which were in, um, bed, which were in bed with the Victoria Newland and the U.S. You know, interests. Well, yeah, they're, they're closer than one might like, let's just put it that way. And Yanukovych was uh, elected basically as a kind of pro-Russian president, Again, they tended to alternate between pro-Russian and anti-Russian presidents. Yanukovych was pro-Russian, or at least he leaned in that direction, and he had the support primarily of the Russian-speaking parts of the country. He wasn't a very good leader, by the way, but nevertheless, he was overthrown in a kind of armed revolt, clearly supported by the United States to some degree. The degree of support we don't know, but that was supported by the U.S. is now a matter of record. And he was overthrown by a mob, essentially, and driven out of the country in what was unquestionably an illegal coup. There was no legality to driving somebody out of office through mob activity, which is what essentially happened here, and replaced with a pro-U.S. government, uh, very likely selected by the U.S. Again, Victoria Newland from the State Department. She was Assistant Secretary for Europe and Eurasia, I believe. The U.S. element here was very clear. And so I think this created a crisis within the Ukraine. Uh, since the new government, again, was not dominated by these sort of very ultra-right-wing segments, but supported by them, certainly. Excuse me. In fact, you know, we've documented this on this show. A half dozen or more very high cabinet positions in the coup government were by these people. They they were neo-Nazi individuals. And that repression that, you know, Odessa and throughout the whole East or whatever... Mm -hmm. 
is what really scared these populations, I think, into this separatist movement, arguably. So I don't mean to say that the United States was in bed with these fascists. I am suggesting that we were responsible for the coup, and the result of the coup was an inordinate power for these ultra-right-wing forces and these battalions that uh, Mm -hmm. wrecked havoc. Clearly, for example, the Azov Special Operations Detachment is a neo-Nazi Ukrainian National Guard unit that is well-known. And according to an indictment of several California men involved in the Charlottesville violence, in an article, Ukraine's neo-Nazis believed to have trained U.S. white supremacists, according to the FBI, This was a November 8, 2018 article. Ukraine's neo-Nazi Azov battalion is believed to have participated in training and radicalizing U.S.-based white supremacists. This according to an affidavit signed by FBI Special Agent Scott Beerworth. Many of the atrocities were attributed to this group and others. And if we're not afraid of the truth, there's a direct line to be drawn from President Obama's Ukraine policies that promoted this coup and the neo-Nazi-ridden cabinet and neo-Nazi-ridden Azov battalion that terrorized so many people. So, excuse me for interrupting, but please continue. That's all right. Well, I think the bottom line, though, is, I mean, you know, what, what you had here was that, yes, there was certainly a fear of the Russian-speaking elements in the Ukraine of what was coming. I'm not aware there was any sort of really horrific repression, but there was certainly fear of that happening. And, you know, you could say from their standpoint that it was at least partly justified given the illegality of the change in government that had taken place. Dr. Gibbs in Odessa, dozens of people were burned to death that were supporting the uh, return of Yanukovych by these led uh, neo-Nazi battalions. I mean, they were in a building, the trade union building. It was burning to the ground and they were being hmm. shot as they tried to get out of there. Well, you know, that, I, I'm not. I, I don't have enough information as to exactly. Yeah, I, I don't what mean to put you on the spot. Yeah, responsible. Yeah, yeah. I'm reluctant to go into too much detail on it sure. on account of the lack of information, specifically what happened and the conflicting reports. But what I do want to note is that the areas that were most affected by this were Crimea, which I think is in the range of 90 percent Russian speaking. Hmm. And the oblasts of Donetsk and Luhansk in the Donbass region, which again are, um, I don't know, 80 to 90 percent Russian speaking. Right. And there's no question that they wanted to separate from the Ukraine and go to Russia. Now, the Crimea is a special case because there was a massive Russian naval base. The Black Sea Fleet of Russia was there under a treaty, and the Russian government was afraid of the security of their naval forces. And so Putin essentially annexed as part of Russian territory the Crimea region. And there's no question this was supported by the large majority of the people in the Crimea region. But it was recognized by no other country in the world. And I I guess you could say it was technically illegal because it was done through military force. I mean, and, you know, that is technically an illegal act. Although, you know, the context was there was the provocation of the U.S.-backed coup. But in any case, in... Uh, and so now the Crimea is, is part of Russia, though it's not recognized by anybody as being part of Russia. Now, in the oblasts of Donetsk and Luhansk, they were not annexed to Russia, um, but Putin was Ill- unwilling to go that far. The local populations raised militias which were supported by Russia, both with arms and volunteers, and they've been resisting the Ukrainian government forces to remain separate, which is where it stands today, essentially in the form of a civil war in the Ukraine between, again, the Ukrainian government, 
uh, now under someone named uh, Vladimir Zelensky, and the two oblasts, Donetsk and Luhansk, which are de facto independent and backed by Russia. And again, none of this would have been necessary. Well, in the first place, it has to be said, what's left out of this, this was not just orchestrated purely by Russia. It's the local populations in these regions almost certainly supported the, the separation from the Ukraine and probably did so with overwhelming support. It's often left out of the narrative here that there is local opinion here. Now, Russia, of course, is using that by, again, annexing the Crimea and by backing the rebels in the Donbass region. But they didn't create this problem to begin with, no. And that, that, I think, is being distorted in the U.S. media. Yeah, and also, I just want to go back to the Crimea. Arguably, the word annexing is, you know, semantically speaking or whatever, that may have been what occurred. But there was a referendum there was an overwhelming support to do that by the people in the Crimea. There was not a single drop of blood spilt. They made reports that there was like thousands of Russian troops in the area. Well, that was part of the treaty that they already had, that they ha they were allowed to have up to 20,000 troops. And finally, that port that you're talking about, that military base is indispensable to their security i'm not a military security expert mm -hmm. but that's a very strong argument i think too right how important is that military they don't have any other na naval base or access in that in that whole area you think about all of the naval bases that we have throughout the world and they have like one major one that this there was this whole according to russian concerns that it was the, that was the point of the the coup was for the United States to take over that naval base as a Western and asset. They were certainly afraid of that. They're certainly afraid of that possibility. You know, I, I think again, this is you know, there's one of these situations where if Russia had done that to the United States, there's no question how the U.S. would have responded and how it would have, would have perceived these events. But again, there is this narrative, which is if the United States acts aggressively, it's always justified, and countries have no reason to oppose it, and if they oppose it, they themselves are acting aggressively. Mm -hmm. And if other, if other countries do that in the United States, then of course we can do the same thing because we're the United States, and we, we get to do what we like, and it's always justified. I, I think that really is the lesson here. Here's just one more thing I'd like to mention, which is, again, mm -hmm. there's this issue of meddling in elections. In 1996, there was an election in Russia, and Yeltsin was running for re-election. He was deeply unpopular because the economy was in terrible shape, and he was increasingly perceived as a puppet of the United States, and he was going to lose the election. And so the United States arranged for him to win the election, and the American intervention was so blatant, the U.S. boasted about it. On the cover of Time magazine, after Yeltsin won the election, there was a caricature of Yeltsin holding an American flag, and the, the cover story read, Gangs to the Rescue, and the sub-headline read something like, the, the secret story of how American advisors helped Yeltsin win. So this is on the cover of Time magazine. And I find it very difficult to respond to claims that Russia meddled in America's elections with anything but eye-rolling. The claim was something like a $100,000 Facebook campaign. Right, exactly. $100,000. That's, that's what the Hillary Clinton campaign spent on subway fare in one month, maybe. Out, you know? of, out of the billions uh, spent, right, yeah, the yeah, percentages. And, and so, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the U.S. was boasting that they re-elected, essentially rigged the election in 1996 in Yeltsin's favor and elected somebody who was deeply unpopular to the Russian people. I should add, my sense is that, you know, the attitude of the Russian people has changed dramatically towards the U.S. In the early 90s, there was a very pro-American wave of pro-Americanism throughout Russia, 
that Russia should not only drop communism, but it should also become as much like the United States as they could. And that turned to a really bitter anti-Americanism by the end of the decade that, by some accounts, is much more intense than anything seen in the Soviet days during the Cold War. And it's not just the government that seems, but the Russian people are taking a very anti-American perspective by what they perceive as American bullying. A lot of the key events, I think, took place in the 90s. The uh, Clinton administration's defense secretary, William Perry, was quoted in the uh, London Guardian giving his view on the recent tensions with Russia. And he said, a lot of it comes down to the expansion of NATO and the attitude in the Clinton White House, and again, he was part of that White House, effectively, Mm -hmm. working from the Pentagon, was that the Russian people are a bunch of losers. And there's no need for the United States to take into account any aspect of their security needs or their feelings or anything else. Because they're losers, we can just do whatever we want. Well, the result is a, you know, a new Cold War with Russia and a danger of nuclear war. That sounds like a disastrous outcome to me. Well, listen, I wanted to comment about that Yeltsin period and the breakup of the Soviet Union, like you alluded to. I think that's a really important thing. And thank you for bringing the election meddling to the table. The privatization that occurred and the incredible yeah. robbing and corruption and the creating of these incredibly powerful oligarchs and reciprocally the demise of the Mm -hmm. level of living for the majority folks in those areas is something that is really important because I think that's the whole point of what our manipulation was that we were trying to bring Russia into the orbit of the Western privatization and all of that so it can be another market that could be profiteered, I think. And that's one of the things that has generated so much support for Putin is that he's reversed and held some of that accountable. You know, I'm sure he's had some corruption history in himself. But at the end of the day, I think your points about double standard is really theme of this show. Apply criticisms, uh, apply analyses evenly, and you'll see a much different story than what Mm -hmm. we're getting in our mainstream press. Well, you know, I think I, I, I just comment on the yes. uh, economic changes. Uh, that is Please. very significant. Around 1990, even before the Soviet Union ended, Yeltsin, who was in presence of Russia, you had Russia and you had the Soviet Union at the same time, invited in an American economic team to reform the Russian economy, led by Jeffrey Sachs. Now he's at Columbia, then he was at Harvard. And Sachs was then a young man who was a very accomplished economist. Um, though he was a Democrat, he was very conservative in his economics. And he advocated and put forth a plan of shock therapy, the extremely rapid privatization of the entire Russian and Soviet economy without much transition. And it was accepted by the Russian government at that time because they were willing to do anything the U.S. told them to do. And they viewed Sachs almost as if he was an American official. He wasn't actually an American official, though. He was viewed that way, and he did work closely with the State Department. And the bottom line is this project was one of the greatest catastrophes in history. You had a cataclysmic decline, not just of living standards, but of life expectancy, especially among males. And the Lancet, a British medical journal, did a retrospective study and found that and attributed the drop in life expectancy directly to the economic changes of this period. I should add that, uh, you know, I, I suspect, and I can't prove this, that sex has been trying to atone for this. And... He shifted to the left. He became an economic advisor to Bernie Sanders, and I guess he considered himself a kind of a you know democratic socialist like Sanders, very different from what he used to be. That's for sure. Nevertheless, I think the Russian public 
bitterly resented this because they thought that if they cast off communism, they would get prosperity instead, and they got the opposite. Very good. And they attributed that directly to the American government because they viewed facts as an instrument of the U.S. government. And, you know, so that also contributed to their bitterness in addition to all the maneuverings with NATO. Very good. Listen, we are out of time, but I want to just applaud that analysis. It's really an important consideration to try to figure out where the psyche of the Russian people is today versus where it was back in 1990. We've had the great honor. Before I let you go, Dr. Gibbs, professor of history at the University of Arizona and author of the book, Do No Harm, Humanitarian Intervention and the Destruction of Yugoslavia. Please, if people want more information on your analysis and uh, and written works, how can they access that? Uh, you just Google David N. Gibbs, N as in Neil, David N. Gibbs, and that'll bring you to my website, and that has uh, my writings and that kind of thing. Outstanding. Well, thank you so much. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and analysis, your perspective. We really need it in this country. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity. Yeah.